per mile driven, motorcycle riders have more serious injuries than automobile drivers. Per, per mile driven, motorcycle riders have more serious injuries, even fatal accidents, than those who drive automobiles. To a lot of us, that seems kind of commonsensical. Now, you're, you're, you're not protected in the same way. You're not, you don't have the same covering. You don't have the same safety measures in place. Uh, but I, I, I can imagine someone pointing out, say, hey, my, my uncle has, has ridden a motorcycle for years, and he's never had a serious accident. He's never had a serious injury. And, and that could be true, right? That could be true. Somebody else could say, hey, I always drive very safely, and I always wear a helmet. I, I think that driving safely and wearing a helmet, that probably does prevent some injuries. Somebody else could also point out, say, hey, automobile drivers, they are also sometimes seriously injured, even fatally, in car accidents. And that would be true. All those things would be true. Still, we all see the truth. We all see the reality that it's a greater likelihood of serious injury if you ride a motorcycle than if you ride in a car. Those who believe and practice charismatic theology have more serious injuries spiritually, fall into greater moral failure than those who hold to historic Protestant and evangelical teaching. Now, somebody could say, hey, what, aren't, there, aren't there good pastors Aren't there good scholars? Aren't there, aren't there good churches? Aren't there, aren't there sincere Christians, good Christians who, who believe in charismatic theology who are not in serious accidents, who don't have serious failures? That's true. I hope you understand today that, that when we're talking about this, I'm not trying to paint in a broad brush where everybody who believes or holds to or practices charismatic theology is all in the same bucket. It's not what I'm saying. We, we grant that that's true. Somebody else could say, hey, I, I'm, I'm very careful not to, to avoid the extremes of charismatic practice. That's kind of like wearing a helmet or driving safely. I mean, I, I, think, that's, I think that's a good thing. That, that's granted. And we could also point out that there are many people who do not hold to charismatic theology who also end up in theological error or moral failure. But I think when we look at it, we take a serious look at it, we can recognize that many people who hold a charismatic belief and practice fall into superstition, strange, unbiblical practices, false doctrine, even heresy, and often excuse moral failure. And so since that's the case, since we see the danger and we, we see it all around us. I mean, we see it in the United States all around. We see it in our local area. And we also see that this is something that is being exported to other countries, to other peoples. And is likewise causing harm everywhere that, it, that everywhere that it spreads. And so what I hope to do today is to make a case for, given, given that that is the reality, 
to make a case for why we should hold to historic Protestant and evangelical beliefs rather than the Pentecostal and charismatic theology that has come up since the beginning of the 20th century and has uh, really dominated for the last 50 years. So this is not this is not the majority view anymore. But this is the case that I want to make for the majority view of history, and I think the teaching of the Scriptures. Now, we do have a text. We're going to be all over the Bible today, but our text that we're going to look at first is going to be 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. And I just want to read verses 1 through 5. I want to read verses 1 through 5, and I want you to pay attention to just two words, tongues and prophecy. Tongues and prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Today's sermon is not a typical sermon. Uh, typically the pastors preach through books of the Bible and typically we'll take a passage, uh, at least a paragraph, sometimes a chapter or more, and we simply exposit or explain the meaning of that passage. Well, we've been going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as a church, uh, and we've come up to chapter 14, and to understand chapter 14, there are really two words, two practices that we need to understand what those words mean. We need to understand what the Bible means by tongues and prophecy. We can't understand verses 1 through 25 or any of chapter 14 without understanding what tongues and prophecy are. So this is still an expository sermon as we normally do and is our common practice, but it just is focused on two words, tongues and prophecy. So I'm going to be building a case for why, for what is called cessationism or the belief that these two spiritual gifts have ceased. Uh, they ceased at a point shortly after the time of the apostles or with the death of the apostles uh, in the first century. I want to build a case for why that is, is true, why we believe that tongues and prophecy as they were practiced in the New Testament no longer exist and why we should no longer practice anything under the labels of tongues and prophecy. So let's start with the idea of cessation. The idea of cessation. Go to Luke 1, 35 through 37. Luke 1, 35 through 37. This is what it says. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Many of you will recognize this as the angelic announcement of the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ will be born to a virgin, born to the Virgin Mary. And this is that announcement there. This is that, this is that, this is that great miracle that in many ways identified Jesus as the Messiah, identified him as the Son of God. And even before we move into this, while, while I'm going to be talking about why there are at least two miraculous gifts that we, that, that, that we do not see happening still, and we do not expect to see happening still, we still believe in miracles. We still wholeheartedly believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, we, we rejoice in saying in verse 37, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. But let me ask you this. Do you expect that there will be another person or believe that there has been another person who has been born of a virgin besides Jesus Christ? I hope not. Something that is unique. We see, we see the uniqueness of that sign. It was a sign that identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. We see it. We, we know that it was something that was prophesied in, in Isaiah. We know there's something that happened only to him. It identified him as the Messiah. And now that that sign has been fulfilled, now that that sign has been completed, we don't expect it to be repeated. We don't expect it to continue. Have any of you ever known anybody else who was born of a virgin? Do any of you expect anybody else to be born of a virgin? Don't, don't you see what it says? Nothing is impossible for God. If you don't believe, does that mean that you are putting God in a box? If you don't accept the idea that, hey, maybe somebody somewhere might be born of a virgin again, does that mean that you are not open to all that the Spirit might be showing to the church? I mean, what if I, what if I said this morning, hey, I, I got a word from God last night in a dream, and he said that we need to pray this morning for a virgin to conceive. And unless we have enough faith this morning, it's not going to happen. But if we have enough faith this morning, hey, a virgin's going to conceive right here. You would all think I was nuts and start heading for the door. I'm not saying that, okay? You would rightly think that way. So here's the idea of cessation. Here is a miracle. Here is a sign that we all believe, that every Christian believes happened. And that we rejoice in. But we do not expect that sign to be repeated or to continue. So all of us believe that at least one miracle is not going to happen again. All of us are a little bit cessationist. I hope. Now then, let's look at the gift of apostle. We may get into tongues and prophecy in a minute, but let's look at the gift of apostle. I'm building a case here. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, the gift of apostle is listed right along with tongues and prophecy and other less spectacular gifts like teaching and helping. It is listed as a spiritual gift. So we're moving from, we're moving from just something that was a miracle 
So something that is an actual spiritual gift listed along with the spiritual gifts. Now let's look at the gift of apostle. What is an apostle? Well, the, the word apostle in Greek simply means messenger or delegate. But most of the time when it is used in Scripture, it takes on this special meaning of the office of apostle. Let's see what, what is the criteria that we use to recognize the gift of apostle, to, to realize what an apostle is. Go to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Matthew 10 and read verses 1 through 7 with me. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 7, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, seeing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. So the first criteria that we see for an apostle is that these men are specially chosen by Jesus Christ. I mean, these men are set out apart from all other men. You can see partly what what their function is, to go out as witnesses here. Now, let's see another criterion for apostles in Acts 1. Turn over to Acts 1. Now, read with me Acts 1, verses 21 and 22. Acts 1 verses 21 and 22. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So that's the second criterion for an apostle, someone who is specially chosen by Jesus Christ to be a witness to his resurrection. Now, the number, the exact number of of apostles is sometimes debatable. We know that Paul was recognized as an apostle. Uh, He talks about that. You can go places like Acts 9, Acts 26, Galatians 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Peter 3. Uh, Paul was was especially called out in an unusual way by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared to him after his resurrection. He was accepted by the other apostles as an apostle. Uh, Sometimes people will add somebody like James. We also know that James, that that the Lord Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. So the the number is debatable. But all of those who are recognized as apostles fit the criteria of being specially called out by Jesus Christ and then being sent out to be witnesses of his resurrection, having seen him after he was raised from the dead. And so here's the question. Do we know of any men today who fit that criteria? 
Notice this. There is no verse in the Bible that says that the gift of apostleship will cease. You notice that? There's no verse that says that. But the the natural inference is that no one, no one has been specially called out by Jesus. And no one living today has seen the resurrected Jesus. And so we do not expect there to be more apostles. We do not recognize more apostles. Now, why is that? Why, why would there not, why would apostles, why, why would the gift of apostles cease before the coming of, of Jesus Christ? Well, let's look at the purpose for apostles. Go to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. We'll come back to this passage later, but for now, we're just going to look at apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. This is what it says. It says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And consider that. What was the purpose for the apostles? I think there we see that the purpose of the apostles was to, I think, through the witness, their witness to the resurrection, through their faithful proclamation of of the revelation that God gave them, they were to found the church. And once once the purpose for that gift, once the purpose for that sign has been completed, are we to expect that apostles would continue. You know how most charismatics answer that question? Most charismatics answer that question, no. Why is that? How, all, all, aren't all of us cessationists of some sort now that we recognize that at least one of those gifts listed in, in 1 Corinthians 12, one of those gifts listed in Ephesians 4, that one of those gifts has now ceased? doesn't automatically mean that, that all of the others or any of the others are, but we at least recognize that one of these gifts has ceased and also recognize why we believe that it has ceased. We believe that it has ceased because, not because there's a verse in Scripture that we go to that says, hey, at one point in the future, uh, there are going to be no more apostles. No, instead, we recognize what the Bible says are the criteria for apostles. We recognize the purpose for apostles. And we recognize that nobody fits that criteria. And the purpose for those apostles has been fulfilled. So we don't expect there to be any more apostles. So let's take that same line of reasoning and apply it to the gift of tongues. Go to Acts 2. Acts 2. And read with me Acts 2, 1 through 11. 1 through 11. This is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So all of the, the Jews are gathered in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. That was a feast that had to do with the harvest, with the first fruits of the harvest. It was a celebration. It was one of the three festivals that Jews were supposed to gather in one place for, gather in Jerusalem. So they're, they're gathered from all over the world. And there a miracle happens. A miracle happens. The Spirit of God descends on them and they begin to speak in other languages so that it would be recognized that, hey, now the gospel is not only for one language, one tongue, people of one nation, but it's now for people of all nations. There is something new happening with the ascension of Jesus Christ, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, something new is happening. Jesus has said to them in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, now here is the sign that, yes, something new is happening. There is a new, there is a new age, a new epic happening in, in redemptive history. And now the gospel is going to be heard in every language. People from all nations are going to come to know Jesus Christ. So we at least see, at least partially there, the, the purpose of this sign. We see what it is. We see there that, that these people are hearing it in their own languages and dialects. They're from every point of the compass around Jerusalem. The same as an aside as, as they were every point of the compass in Genesis 10. All these nations spread out, but now they're gathering in Jerusalem and they are hearing the gospel. They are hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. In their own language, human languages. This is a miraculous gift of the ability to proclaim the gospel in languages that you have not learned by ordinary means. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that everybody recognized as a miracle. Something that could be verified. Now, some people will say, I remember when I was in college, I was listening to uh, a guy uh, speak through 1 Corinthians four, uh, 14. He was speaking on 12 through 14 for that semester. And I was sitting next to a friend. My friend had been to seminary. And, and, uh, and the guy said, you know, some people think that the, the tongues in Acts are different from the tongues in, in uh, Corinth. And my friend, yeah, he said, yeah, they are. I was like, oh, he's been to seminary. He must know. Uh, let's think about how reasonable that is. If you look, you can go and look this up in a concordance. You could go and find all the, all the places where, where the word tongue is used in the New Testament. You'll see the same thing that you would see in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew canon or the Hebrew Old Testament. You would see the same thing, the predominant meanings in, in Greek of the time. 
is that tongue could be used to talk about the physical organ that is right here in the mouth, like in Luke 16, where the man, the, the rich man who is suffering in hell wants a dip of water on his tongue. You can see it being spoken of as speech, like in James 3, where we talk about taming the tongue, famous passage that we know of. Or it could be used to refer to human languages and dialects, the way it's used in Acts 2 and Revelation 5. Every place in the New Testament that the word glossa or tongue is used, it means it is used with one of those three meanings. 1 Corinthians 14 obviously being contested. So is it reasonable to think that a word that is used with a specific meaning every place else in the New Testament has this one unique meaning in 1 Corinthians 14? Is there a basis for that? I don't think there is one. And let's also consider how reasonable it is. Think, think about the books of 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians was written in the mid-50s by Paul. The book of Acts was written in the early 60s by Paul's close associate, Luke. Are we to think that Luke, the close associate of Paul, uses the very same terminology, the very same word for speaking, the very same word for tongue, uses the very same terminology, Luke meaning using it one way and Paul using it another. Or even Paul, who oversees speaking in tongues in, in Acts 19, are we to think that he oversees one form of speaking in tongues, kind of Acts-style speaking in tongues in Ephesus, but he oversaw a different kind of speaking in tongues in Corinth? I'm going to say that that's not a reasonable presumption. That's not that the preponderance of evidence says that tongues has a clear meaning in Scripture and that it is, it is speaking in human languages, miraculously learned for the proclamation of the gospel. Now then, is there a purpose that is discernible for tongues? Go to Acts 10. Go to Acts 10. Oh, and before I leave the definition of tongues... Just, just as an aside, this was the understanding of the first Pentecostals. Charles Parham was a Wesleyan holiness minister who was leading an all-night prayer, prayer meeting in 1901. And one of his students began to speak in what they claimed was Chinese. Over the next few days, they began to speak in over 20 different languages, Russian and Norwegian and Spanish and Italian. and one of those students went on to, to preach at the Azusa Street Revival, usually the mark, the, the point at which Pentecostalism is marked as beginning. They all thought that they were speaking in real human languages. Do you know why? Because like everybody else who had ever read the Bible up until that point, the common sense understanding of tongue was as an, a human language. They were very surprised when they started to send out missionaries to these different uh, countries and to find out that here they thought they were speaking in one language and nobody understands them. But instead of giving it up as something that was false, they redefined it. So it's something to consider that this is not my understanding. This is, this is the, first, the, the understanding of the first Pentecostals. 
And so it was only redefined later. Let's talk about the purpose of tongues. Flip over to Acts 10. Acts 10. Verses 44 through 48. Acts 10, 44 through 48. This is what it says. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter was reluctant to recognize that Gentiles could have faith in Jesus Christ. That Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit without becoming Jews. God had had to come to him, reveal to him in a vision, in in Acts 10, reveal to him in a vision that Gentiles could indeed be saved. Gentiles could indeed receive the Holy Spirit. Gentiles could believe in Jesus Christ. Well, right after he hears this, sees this vision, uh, he hears about a man named Cornelius who wants to speak to him. And and, uh, Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile. That is somebody who believes in the God of the Jews, but has not uh, gone gone all the way and become become a proselyte or become a Jew himself. And so Peter goes to this man. This man that up until this day, he didn't believe could become a Christian. And he preaches to them and everybody who's there, he preaches to them the gospel. And to confirm that, yes, these Gentiles can become Christians. Yes, these Gentiles can be believers in Jesus Christ, can receive the Holy Spirit. To confirm that to Peter, you can see, you can see even how it's happening here. They are speaking in tongues, and Peter says, they are doing the same thing that we did. Back at Pentecost, we knew that there was something new happening because we began to speak in languages that we had never learned. We began to proclaim the gospel in languages that we had never learned. And here he is speaking to Gentiles and saying, hey, we believe that they have the Holy Spirit because they are speaking in tongues that they have never learned. They have the same gift that we have. And if we were to go on and read in, in Acts 15, we would see that, that Peter, Peter has this confirmed for him by a sign, by a miracle. And that's one of the things that we see even, even happening. This is something else that probably is it, not mentioned in Acts 8, happening among the Samaritans. Wouldn't be surprised if it did. We see it happening in, in Acts 19 where, where Paul goes. Paul, the apostle, is there, and he is speaking the gospel to, uh, to Ephesians. These are not just God-fearing Gentiles, but these are real-deal pagan Gentiles, and he is speaking the gospel to them, and they, they believe and they speak in tongues. And, and every place that's happening is that, is that the, the gospel is going out. This, this sign of tongues is saying, this is for all peoples in all languages. And every time it, it crosses an ethno-linguistic barrier, there is this sign that says the gospel is for all peoples, for all human languages. You may think that since I am arguing for the cessation of tongues in this time, that I don't like tongues. I love tongues. I love the gift of tongues. I praise God for the gift of tongues because the gift of tongues assures me as someone who is not born a Jew 
who has not come into, in, in, come into the Old Testament people of God, someone who has not been circumcised as a Jew or been admitted into the people of God in the Old Testament. Someone who has not taken on all the marks or all the, the festivals or all the laws of the Jews. I am assured by the gift of tongues that I too can receive the Holy Spirit. And for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, now, now praise God that the, 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 the gift of tongues was one of those signs that established that yes, through faith in Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' death on the cross, the Spirit of God comes to us. And not only to us, but to every language on the face of the planet. That which scattered the people in judgment at the Tower of Babel has now been done away with by the power of the Spirit. And so there is this purpose of showing tongues. Tongues show us that the gospel is for everybody. It is for all peoples in all languages. Now, is that something that is still debated? I think it's not. I think that, that if someone were go to go and preach to an unreached people group, we do not need the confirmation of tongues to say, yes, the gospel can go to these people. We've already had that question answered. So it's not surprising that the gift of tongues would cease. And just think about, just consider this, that if the gift of tongues, that was, as it was practiced in the New Testament, continued, who would it benefit the most? Missionaries. So why are missionaries moving into other cultures and working very hard to learn the native language so that they can, they can share the gospel with people? Well, we've got the gift of tongues if it continues today. Why are Bible translators working so hard to get the scriptures into other languages when we just have the gift of tongues? I think it's because the gift of tongues, the purpose for the gift of tongues has already been fulfilled. It's already been completed. So we shouldn't expect the gift of tongues to be renewed. We shouldn't expect it to continue. And we shouldn't label something that is not tongues as tongues. Lest we be led astray. Now let's look at the gift of prophecy. Let's look at the gift of prophecy. Turn back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. The gift of prophecy is just straightforwardly a man speaking on behalf of God, of preaching what God had revealed to him. And the, the people of Israel were given a test, multiple tests in the Old Testament to, to say so that they would be able to identify true prophecy. So here's the first test, the doctrinal test in, in Deuteronomy 13. We'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded uh, to, to leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. There, was, there were commandments. There was a way of worshiping God that had been established. Moses says, God says through Moses, anybody ever comes and preaches a new way to you, gives a new prophecy and says, let's go and abandon this way of walking with the Lord. Anybody ever comes to you and they even have a sign and a wonder? Don't listen to them. We could take the same, the, the same idea. We could go to some place like Jeremiah 23 and say, see that it applies also to moral integrity. So a prophet who does not live, who does not teach sound doctrine or live a morally, uh, with moral integrity, don't listen to them. In fact, the New Testament application of this would be to put that person out of the church. How many people would be helped just by simply applying this test? Don't be led astray by those who come with a word from God that says something contrary to the scriptures. Just test it by the scriptures. Know the scriptures. Don't be, don't be, don't be led astray. Now flip over just a little bit to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Now, like if you read the entire uh, chapter here, the, the entire section here of, of Deuteronomy 18, it's like a glossary of, of words for prophecy uh, and and. It's like Moses is saying, it doesn't matter what you call it, whether it's a dream or a vision or a seer or a prophet, it doesn't matter what it is. Anybody comes to you in this way, and this doesn't happen, doesn't fit this criteria, you don't believe it. So read verses 21 and 22. It says, oh, sorry, 20 through 22. It says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same shall, prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the standard here is 100% accuracy. I've, I've heard and read that some really well-trained, quote-unquote, prophets can achieve 65 to 80% accuracy. Or they're the best at speaking and studied ambiguities. I don't know which. Do we have people today who are speaking revelation from God with 100% accuracy? I don't know of anyone. I don't even think that charismatics themselves claim that they are. 
what we have instead is many, many people who claim to have words from God that are not coming from the scriptures, but coming from their own imaginations. They're claiming these words from God and nobody is holding them accountable for the accuracy of it. No one is saying, hey, I, I heard back then, I heard back in, back in 2013 when he said this would happen, it didn't happen. I'm not listening to that. In fact, I think we can with greater confidence just say the gift of prophecy does not continue today. Now, to say that, what I want to do next is look at the purpose of prophecy. Uh, just, just before I go there, I left something out. One of the latest ways around these tests is to say that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy. One of the things that Cares Max will often say is there's no verse that says that prophecy has ended. I'd really like to know where the verse is that indicates that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy. Where is that verse? One very creative scholar has proposed Agabus as an example of somebody who spoke erroneous prophecy. Like in Acts 11 when he said by the Spirit that there would be a famine. And then there was a famine. Or Acts 21, when by the Spirit he said that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. And Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. So I don't, I don't know how that works. I don't know. Uh, you have to be very educated and very creative to come up with that, I think. So that, that's just one way that people have come around it. I don't think, that, I don't think there's any way to, to make that argument. Let's look at the purpose for prophecy in the New Testament. Look at Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 again. You can kind of hold your place there. We'll be at, be at another place in, in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Look at what it says. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So similar to apostles, prophets also spoke revelation from God for the New Testament churches. They spoke for God before the scriptures had been gathered together, before the scriptures had been uh, all written. The prophets were there in the churches. There was something new happening. Jesus Christ had come. The Messiah had come. The Messiah had gone to the cross and been crucified. The Messiah had been raised from the dead. The Messiah had ascended into heaven. The Messiah had sent down. The Son of God had sent the Spirit of God to inhabit his people. New things were happening. God gave the church apostles and prophets to explain what these things meant. To proclaim these things to the churches. Turn over, uh, just, just look in the next chapter at verses 4 through 6. To Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. This is what it says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Just consider the 400 years between Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. Jews knew that there was no prophecy during that time. 
How did they know? Nobody fit the criteria for a prophet. No one was speaking new revelation with perfect accuracy. But then you have something new happen. And then for a period of time to make it plain what had happened, the meaning, the revelation you can see there, what Paul says, now has been given, was not given before to the sons of men, but has now been given to the apostles and prophets to make known to you the revelation of God. What is happening right now? Even in this particular case of the both, both Jews and Gentiles being united in one body in Jesus Christ. Both of them finding salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, since, since the church has been founded, and since through the apostles and prophets the word has been spoken and it has been, it has been given, should we expect the gift of prophecy to continue? I think not. I think we see, again, that the criteria for profit does not, is not being met today and that the purpose for prophecy has been fulfilled. And so we don't expect these things to continue. And I think we're confirmed in that by what the apostles teach the churches. What is, what is the vision of the apostles? What is their idea of what should be happening after them? We'll flip over to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4.13. 1 Timothy 4.13. Look at what it says. In fact, let me expand out from them. And, and, and read 11 through 16. It says... Command and teach these things. Let one, no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of, the, of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearing. Hearers. You see there, in one generation, you see the gift of prophecy. By prophecy, Timothy is being set apart. We see no indication that Timothy is ever commanded to, pro to prophesy. We see no indication that Timothy is sent anywhere to appoint prophets, to call out a circle of prophets. Instead, Every, the, everything about the emphasis is, is focused on the teaching of what has already been given. Flip over to 2 Timothy 3. We'll start in verse 16 and read into chapter 4. 2 Timothy 3, 16, reading into chapter 4. This is what it says. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Evidently, the scriptures are, are sufficient for that. And then he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Flip back just one more, uh, 
to one chapter to 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The picture there that we see in First and Second Timothy is not of prophets giving new revelation. It's not the appointment of new prophets. It's not the continuation of apostles and prophets. It's not, it's not new revelation coming to individuals or coming to churches. It's the vision of qualified men being called out, faithful men. In every church, teaching the scriptures. The scriptures that the apostles and prophets had the authority to speak and to write, which we have collected and recognized in the scriptures. So consider that that having been done, are we going to expect people to speak prophecies over us, to our churches, to give us prophecies? Is that what we're expecting? I think, as with the gift of apostle, the criteria for tongues and uh, the purpose of tongues has been fulfilled. I think that the, I think based upon the evidence of scripture, the gift of prophecy, its criteria is no longer being met and its purpose has been fulfilled. And so we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't seek, we shouldn't look for these things to continue or to be renewed. Now then, just here at the end, this, I know that this has been kind of methodical. It's been very, very, uh, kind of brainiac, you know, that, that kind, of, kind of looking at a lot of different things, looking all over the scriptures, uh, trying to make logical deductions from what the scriptures teach. But then we finish with, some, with, with just a little bit of, of application. And it's simply this, beware of extra biblical authority, extra biblical experience, and extra biblical revelation. So even if you're not convinced up until now, you, you, maybe, you're, maybe you'll never be convinced, and I understand that. Or maybe you're not convinced yet, and you need more time to think about it. This is at least an exhortation that I think that we should all be able to agree with to, you know, at least drive safely and wear a helmet, okay? Beware of extra-biblical authority. There are no more apostles. There is no man outside of a local church who has the authority to speak to that church. There are people who claim that authority for themselves. There is, in fact, one man who claims the authority to speak for the universal church. I do not believe he has that authority. There are movements like the New Apostolic Reformation, which has some pretty heavy hitters in it, who claim to have authority, the authority of apostles, there are men who maybe they don't claim to be apostles, but they, they act as if they have the authority of apostles. They claim to have authority over multiple churches or, or in some senses, uh, multiple congregations as you have in, in multi-site churches. That's not the vision that we have of, of pastors in the New Testament. In pastors in the New Testament, you see multiple elders in every town, in every church who hold one or another accountable and who themselves are accountable to the congregation. 
You don't see apostles from outside of the church speaking God's word to churches that they don't even show up in on a weekly basis. We don't see that. And so don't feel obligated. Don't listen to men who attempt to exercise extra-biblical, apostolic-like authority over you. They do not have that authority. They do not have that authority. And so don't listen to that. See that for what it is. That is false teaching. Also beware of extra-biblical experience. Think about those churches where tongue speaking takes a hold. Tongue speaking becomes unharnessed from the biblical definition of what tongues are. The biblical definition and the biblical function of tongues becomes disconnected and unharnessed. And what happens the next time the next wave of extra biblical experience comes through? The ne- you know, when somebody has some holy laughter or some holy barking or some holy whistling or some holy drunkenness or we got the, we got the glory cloud or we got the fire tunnel. What about when that comes through? What about when everybody's getting slain in the spirit? What about when those things come through? All those, all those extra biblical experiences. I think what you see happening is that in those places where tongue speaking takes a hold, they're more susceptible to all these other forms of extra biblical experience. And that's, I'm not making a slippery slope argument here. What I'm saying is when you unharness your experience, from the scriptures, you get extra biblical experience and you don't know where that's going to take you. And don't misunderstand that. I'm for experience. I want all of us to be experiencing the comfort and the joy and the peace of God that comes into the heart of a believer who trusts in Jesus Christ. But that, that is a biblical experience attached to, harnessed to, connected to biblical truth. It's not fancy. It's not myth. It's not imagination. It's real, genuine experience. And and I am happy to see you express your experiences. I'm happy to see people happy and rejoicing. Those are good things. When it is connected to biblical doctrine, biblical teaching, biblical experience, connected to biblical teaching, That's what we need. And finally, beware of extra biblical revelation. I think think that even among the the Christians that I'm around, this is is one of the most important. We've got to be careful with the way that we talk about God spoke to me or God's word came to me. I don't, I don't want you to listen to me or Matt come up and say, you know, God spoke to me and this is what our church is doing. How are you going to argue with that? Right? How are you going to argue with that? We start to say to you something, God spoke to me and I can't point to scripture to back it up. That's not God speaking. We expect to find God speaking to us through the scripture. Don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that when we're talking about speaking God's word to one another, that it always has to be scripture verbatim. 
We're just talking about doctrine and teaching that comes from the Scriptures, that is based on the Scriptures. We can talk about biblical commands. We can talk about biblical teachings. We can talk about biblical patterns and examples, things that we are trying. But, it, but when, we, when we talk about God's Word to us, we're talking about the Bible. So we have to be more careful with our language. The pastors, the pastors are going to be trying to be careful not to speak that way. And I think it'd be helpful if we tried not to speak that way. Even if we don't mean it that way. We, even if we don't mean that God is, is giving us audible messages that other people are obligated to follow. Even if we don't mean it that way, people misunderstand. We're, we're in a climate where God is, is whispering sweet nothings into everybody's ears. And so we have to be careful with God spoke to me and God called me to do this and God told me to do this. It's perfectly okay to read the Bible, to pray about it, to talk to other people in the church and make a decision. That's okay. That is, that is not unspiritual. In fact, I would say that is what we are expected to do. Read the scriptures, see what it says, pray about it. And I'm not saying that God is not at work in our lives providentially, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our intuitions, in our circumstances. But there is no God-inspired revelation being beamed into my brain or being whispered into my ear. And we shouldn't believe people who say that it is. We're not obligated to obey anything except what is found in these scriptures or what can be based upon them. And so beware of extra-biblical experience. This is not a pleasant topic to talk about. I know that a lot of people treasure charismatic beliefs and practices. But I don't see how you couldn't look out at the landscape of our area, of our nation, even of global Christianity and not see that this is a problem. That it is a problem that is being, that is doing damage to individual Christians and churches all over the place. And it might not be something that we want to talk about. It's something we need to talk about because we want people to recognize biblical authority, which starts with recognizing Jesus as their king. Not a man of God that acts as some sort of shaman. But Jesus Christ speaking through his word. We want people to have biblical experiences that come from believing God's word, especially believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and rose again so that everyone who believes in him would know I'm righteous before God. I'm adopted by God as my father. I am a child of God. I am set apart as, as one of God's people. Everyone, we want to base that on the, on the scriptures. We want that experience. We want you to know what it is to have the spirit within you cry out, Abba, which has a meaning, Father. Because that is what the Spirit of God causes us to say in prayer. And so we know, we want, we want that experience for you. We want people all over the world to hear the gospel and know that biblical experience. And they can't know that when, we're, when we are pulling ourselves away from the teaching of the Scriptures for, for 
other extra biblical experiences. And finally, we want people to be trained up. The Great Commission says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded them. How are we going to make disciples when we are looking for extra biblical prophecy? The reason why we have to be so careful is because people want to look for a word from God every place but in the Bible. And we're teaching God's word from the Bible. And so ultimately, it is for the preservation of a lot of people who feel burdened to say, and put on a helmet at least, and if necessary, stop all, get off of your charismatic donor cycle and come to God's word as it is taught, as we see in the scriptures, and speak that to one another. Be prepared to hear it from one another. Let's teach and admonish one another continually until we are all built up to the maturity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, uh, please grant that, that we'd be able to look at this in a new way. We'd be able to look at it uh, fresh and, and even be able to, if we realize uh, if we realize that we have thought something wrong or practiced something wrong, that we would be willing to give up uh, practices and thoughts that we treasure, have treasured in the past, and where we have friends and brothers and sisters who, who still are unconvinced, grant that we would be patient. And indeed, if even we are mistaken in many ways, help us, to, help us to see the truth and help us to bear with one another. Help us to practice the, uh, in life that love is patient. Help us to give to one another get the gift of time, the gift of time to, uh, to understand and to, to learn and to apply. Help us to, from this point, to have this as a basis that would, that would propel us that having seen that the gospel is for all people in all languages, that we would carry your word to them and that we would make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has commanded us. Help us to live this out ourselves, to more and more achieve that, that measure of completeness and maturity and perfection that you have laid out in your scriptures. Even as we progress toward the day when Jesus Christ will return. Help us to put our hope in these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.